0: All right, good morning. Hey, I'm Cameron. I'm the lead pastor here at Christ Community Church. And the children are dismissed. Let me give you a warning. They'll be coming back. Um, When we do communion, the children, kindergarten through second grade, come back into the service so that they can witness this means of grace together with us. And so, uh, so just give a heads up. When I step down from the stage, be looking for your child. They'll be looking for you. All right, um, just real quick, uh, no Dungeons and Dragons is not biblical uh, as such, but given where we are in Daniel, it's close right? Uh, Especially given Daniel 7, Daniel 8, probably a little bit, but not so much. Um, And given the popularity of Stranger Things, I'm going to let Philip live on that. So, Um, but yes, we are very excited to be able to support him. We support actually several um, interns that are doing campus ministry. And so we, we love the fact that he is excited about seeing lost people come into the kingdom because the church has one job. What's that one job? make disciples who make disciples not just make disciples who sit around and talk about their own problems and their own failings and never get outside of the bubble right so it's very important that we recognize the church has one job and that is what we will push toward it is not just for us to sit around and hash out again and again and again our own failings but instead to recognize we are going to mess up we're going to fail it's going to be imperfect but Praise Jesus. He is, and that makes us what we cannot be, right? So <clears throat> uh, we're very very thankful for the opportunity to support him and that the Lord gave us that opportunity. Um, all right, so if you would turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 8, let me catch us up to where we are. Um, this is an interesting chapter because it's going to um, take us back in time yet again, but forward in time in a sense, back in time in reference to the previous vision. If you remember, the previous vision was of these grotesque monsters which was very interesting I heard several of you went home and as a family drew them uh, I saw the Okies drawings they were amazing Um, and so it was very very cool to see them trying to think that through and so if you remember the emphasis was really on the fourth kingdom that would come and uh, and really the other kingdoms weren't a whole lot wasn't said about them what's interesting about this is this vision is actually about the second and the third kingdom and it's going to flesh out what's going to happen in those second and third kingdoms. And if you remember, what's the purpose of prophecy? It's, it's to freak us out, right? right? It's, it's to make us do like Billy Ray Cyrus did and watch the news 24-7 and panic, right? It's to make us frantic, right? Isn't that what prophecy is supposed to do? No, anything but. What it is supposed to do, actually, um, is to draw us to the Lord, either through confession of sin... Right? repentance. right. There's, there's things that prophecy makes us see in and of ourselves. And what we're going to see is that the whole reason that these kingdoms come and that God's people are judged is their own transgressions. Remember, judgment begins where? In the house of the Lord, not in the world. See, we spend so much of our time actually critiquing the culture, and that's not what we were called to do. They don't understand. There's no rubric for the world to actually understand what it is we're even talking about. And we waste our breath a lot of times in these overwrought critiques of the world doing what it was going to do and supposed to do given its fallenness. The real critique, and I'm, I'm, I'm putting myself on the, in the crosshairs here, is is the church doing what she is supposed to do. And it got quiet. Remember, the church isn't me. It's you, all of us together collectively. So it's not only what I do, it's what you do. And you have far more reach than I do, right? Once someone finds out I'm a pastor, it changes their language in many ways. It changes how how they interact at all, oftentimes in not good ways. Whereas you have far more ability to engage and reach and, and be in relationship because they're not pretending to be something that they think that I need them to be, which I find fascinating. And so, um, so it's, it's, it's important that we remember that prophecy is instead to draw us to repentance. It is also to comfort us, right? To let us know, yes, difficult things will come. But the Lord is sovereign, and he is faithful, and he will protect his people, and he will decide how far things can go. That's incredibly important for us. I I heard from many of you last week said that, man, that that was a heavy sermon. Well, this one won't be much lighter. I'm sorry. But we do have communion at the end, which will be sweet to us. We really should have probably did an impromptu communion last week to make sure nobody would jump off the ledge. But it is important that we remember this heaviness is the story. Right? Our salvation was made necessary through the brutal crucifixion of an innocent man. Who we take very lightly, by the way. Right? We run the risk of trampling underfoot these good things. Many of you do. I see it in some of your faces. Uh, Some of you who are young, you need to be very careful about how lightly you take this. You do. You need to be very careful about how much you dismiss this as if you think you have an eternity to blow. You don't. And it's very important that you pay attention to the word of the Lord, not necessarily even me and what I have to say, but that you are checking yourself against the Word of God and having the Spirit move in you. It is easy when you're young to think. And my birthday's coming up, so I'm obviously like morbidly reflective. All of a sudden, uh, <laughs> I'm drawing nigh to fifty. It's only forty. It's only a pair of fours, but fifty just feels so close. It Feels half over. Um, and so, so I have reflected a lot this week for some reason on this idea of how we just waste time and how we waste our lives, and how we waste our bodies as if we could just up and recover. No, you don't, you don't recover, do you? For those of you who've sinned long in tooth, red in claw, right, it, it, as you, it gets harder to recover, and things accumulate. This isn't just casual. And so these visions are not something that we could just easily dismiss, it is something that we need to pay close attention to for both the purpose of being convicted ourselves so that we would repent, not that it's going to make suffering go away, or to ensure there'll be no suffering at all, but to ensure that there'll be no suffering in judgment, which is different, and to be comforted by the God who is sovereign, the God who is good, the God who is faithful, right? And what we're gonna see is he uses even the wicked. That's very important to us, because given the wicked men that we've seen throughout history, who was it that told them they could only go so far? Now, I get, Many of you, and myself included, have the question, why did he let them go so far? Why is he letting them go so far? There are wicked men who are killing people now, right? I don't have an answer for that. But I do know that if he can't, if there is not a sovereign one who can stop them, there is no hope for any of us at all. All right, so I have a question before we begin, and then a prayer from John Calvin what is going on currently in our world that causes you concern? What, 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 is, what is going on in the world that you're paying attention to that is causing you great concern? And, and a follow-up question, why are you so concerned about it and what is it that you think you can do? Right, like, what is what is the means of engagement that you're leaning on that you think makes an actual difference in the things that are concerning in this world? How, how many of you uh, have have wept over the last few days over the death of the king of Thailand? Yeah, I, there's so for those of you who know what what may go on in Thailand as a result of that, it could become very difficult for a set of our missionaries, the Mills. Right? That's a that's a world event that matters. He reigned for 70 years. He's dead and anytime you have the death of a of a king like that, things go into upheaval and can be violent and can be and can be difficult. And so we need to be praying for the mills because this affects them, right? We heard and we've heard from the stocks who serve in Bangalore Um, that uh, that there's just tough situations coming for them from a governmental perspective. It depends. It makes a difference who comes into office there and what gets pressed and how it gets pressed. Um, All of our missionaries are serving in situations that are delicate and fragile. We happen to live in one I think. Is there some concern about some date coming here soon? Some super Tuesday of some sort? Right? And how the world will change. So How are you expressing your concern? Are you you expressing it as one who is founded upon the sovereign, faithful God who holds all things in his hand? Or do you sound panicked or frantic or shrill? See, what we have before us is a fantastic opportunity to do the church's one job, to make disciples who make disciples. Right The world is looking at the church for something different, actually, and, and we have this beautiful opportunity in how we express ourselves in these uncertain times, to make a genuine eternal difference that will last after the kings and kingdoms have come and they have gone. So what are you doing? It's a good question to ask. Don't beat yourself up for what you've done, but instead ask, how can you go forward? Because people are paying attention. They're paying attention to what you you post. They're paying attention to what you say. They're paying attention to whether or not you pray. They're paying attention to how you speak of the various candidates, right? Out of the wellsprings of the heart, remember And if you don't think that God can save any and every one of them, oh, you of little faith, woe be unto you, me included. So we ought to be a people of great prayer during these very uncertain times. We ought to be a people of great confidence during these uncertain times because of what the Bible says about God and his love for his people and how he works in history is not beyond him. This hasn't gotten out of control. He hasn't grown bored or tired of us at all. In fact, he's calling the church to do what she's always been called to do throughout history, right? You you cannot be paying attention to the modern church and not recognize we have grown very, very complacent on a lot of issues from racial reconciliation to Gender, how we treat people who struggle with same-sex attraction, how we treat any and everybody who is different from us. We, at times, clearly display that we just don't get it. And God so graciously is calling out to us to change before there's no voice. But his, remember, he can make the rocks cry out. So, what is currently going on in our world that concerns you? And what are you doing about it in a way that is exalting to the Lord our God and bringing comfort not only to you, but those around you? All right, am I saying that you should, you should not care who get no, vote, vote wisely, know why you're gonna do what you're gonna do. I will not tell you what to do because different ones of you have different passions about this whole issue. But what I will tell you to do is pray. What I will tell you to do is maintain unity. What I will tell you to do is to exalt the sovereign Lord our God and not the broken, fallen system, man, woman, or otherwise. Listen to what Calvin says, and as, as, this is a prayer that he wrote for his sermons on Daniel 8, 2 through 7. I love these words and they were very comforting to me this week as I prepared this sermon. He says, when the land through which we are on pilgrimage, let me pause right there. Is this world our home? No, it actually isn't. Uh, it's the new heavens, the new earth that will be our home. We are citizens of a far country, a better country, right? That doesn't mean we don't care about this one. That just means we care different. It means we care with a completely different confidence. He says, When the land through which we are in pilgrimage is in confusion, may we be so occupied during its storms as to stand composed and grounded upon the faith of thy promises. Until, having discharged our warfare, we are gathered together into that happy rest where we shall enjoy the fruit of our victory in Christ Jesus our Lord Amen Well said, John Calvin. Well said. And would this would be something we would pray just this week. I, I would encourage you, even this Sabbath day, take this prayer, walk through it with your family, think it through. There's a lot in there. So as we approach Daniel 8, may that be our prayer, because what Daniel's going to hear is that, yes, the fourth beast kingdom or the fourth kingdom is going to be the worst there is a tremendous amount of suffering that will happen in between. In fact, it's going to be phenomenal and overwhelming to the people of God. And so what, what Daniel, the book of Daniel has been showing us is the first six chapters, if you, if you think about it from the narrative perspective, gave us the, the, the perspective of what it looked like to live under that first kingdom. And it also gave us the transition from the first to the second kingdom. So the first six chapters took care of that. The seventh chapter gives us a foretaste of how bad that fourth kingdom is going to be. And now he's going to step back and show us what the second and the third kingdom, what life in those kingdoms looks like and will look like for the people of God. And it's frightening indeed. In fact, it leaves Daniel utterly shaken such that he says, I don't even understand what to think about. He will not be the one who has to live through it, though. But he's concerned because he's so connected to the people of God and he cares for them. And then the rest of the book is gonna take us back to life under that fourth kingdom and unfold what the end will look like. Remember the hope from chapter seven. The ancient of days, will call the son of man, and he will give him the kingdom. That's the promise that we have coming. That's the promise of this table. That is the promise that we can stand on, as Calvin says, in the midst of the storm that will come on our earthly pilgrimage. Let's turn to the text and read Daniel 8, 1 through 7. This is Daniel's second vision, the first part, and it's critical that you recognize the change in animals because that is important. Hear the word of the Lord. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision... And when I saw, I was in Susa, the capital, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ula Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west, across the face of the whole earth, without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Now, notice the transition from the the hideous beasts that we saw in Daniel chapter seven to two very interesting choices, a ram and a goat. Now why would the Lord choose to show Daniel a ram and a goat in reference to these kingdoms in this vision? Those are sacrificial animals. Those are animals who don't get to decide what it is they will do ultimately. Those are animals that are in the Redeemer's hands. That's that's something for Daniel to recognize right away and a comfort to the people is they will not be able to decide what they want to do when they want to do it, although they are incredibly powerful. Now, how we know who these two kingdoms are is later on, Gabriel's going to tell Daniel that the, the ram with the two uh, uneven horns, that's the Medo-Persian kingdom. And then the goat who comes with the one horn and then the four horns, which we'll see in just a minute, and the little horn who's gonna rise out of that, that is the kingdom of Greece. And so we, we already know who they are. That's the second and third kingdom. That's how it follows. You had Babylon who was overthrown by the Medo-Persians and the Medo-Persians will be overthrown by Greece. And then later, Greece will be overthrown. Kingdoms will rise and kingdoms will fall, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And so, in this vision, what Daniel is being shown is this transition from one kingdom to the next, which is interesting because, in the midst of these transitions, the people of God will actually return from exile, they will actually rebuild the temple. There will be a time for them yet again in the promised land. So this is an interesting vision indeed because it overlaps all of that. And so it's very troubling because it it makes Daniel to wonder what is the future. But again, because these are sacrificial animals and there's a fourth kingdom coming and there's a king who is coming. This is not the end. But the reason that he's given this vision is so that the people of God could endure under the suffering that is coming because this world make no mistake hates every aspect of who and what God is which means they hate every aspect of you the image bearer and you who display his glory in any way shape or form you are hated but you are not called to return that hate because those who hate you bear what same image And we should be calling them out. The reason that the Lord tarries, that these kingdoms rise and fall is so that the family would grow bigger. And it does because God is faithful. He's unwilling to let his people perish. And that should cause us to say amen because God is good. So listen to what Del Ralph Davis says about this passage. He says, these are times of conquest and upheaval and demise. Nations seem to be both furious and fragile. And this is where the people of God have to live. This history is their address. See, you are here in the United States of America during this season because God is sovereign. This is you, your address, people of God. And how will you deal with what you see as upheaval and demise, right? There's the threat of an even greater Cold War coming. It was interesting to me, I was watching the news, and, and uh, I don't know why you would want to tell Russia you're gonna launch a cyber attack, but apparently, that's what we've done. And Biden was like, hey, we're sending them a message. Yeah, but they know it's coming, so. Like, what are we do we, like, uh, this is very interesting to me, so it's a very interesting time. We have enemies on all sides. The whole Syria issue is an absolute, just, just wreck of a situation. And the people are caught in the crosshairs of that. The re- refugee crisis, 60 Minutes did a, a thing on it, or is doing a thing on it tonight. This is one of the largest refugee crisis that has been documented. And think about, think about what's going on uh, in Afghanistan, where nations, these great powers, have risen against these little people of the hills of Afghanistan, and we can't seem to figure it out. We can't seem to do anything with them. It's still as broken as when we started So we live in a time of great demise and nations raging against nations and upheaval. And the threat seems greater than it's ever been, but no, it's not. It's as great as it always was. And God is as faithful as he's always been, and he always is, and he always will be. Remember what we read from, this is why we've been reading Revelation 1, the one who is and who was and who is to come because he spans the totality of history. Notice that these nations are colliding with one another because he said so. So are you praying for the leaders and the circumstances involved in the things that you are concerned about that are going on in this world? I'm not saying praying for their destruction, but their salvation, which is greater than their destruction. Do you have any idea? Like, I I know we, we, we... if we're honest, we don't believe this can happen, but do you have any idea if, if before the next debate, which I think is on Wednesday, is that right? I'm sure some of you have your calendars marked. Uh, I don't, uh, but, uh, but what would happen if they both converted before Wednesday and they had a genuine earth-shaking repentance and they came together and said, hey listen, this, all this debate stuff is just a waste of time. We, want, we, we just wanna honor the Lord our God We'd drug test both of them, right? I mean, we would be so suspicious. We'd be like, ah, oh, no, I've seen this before, right? That's, that's, we're so cynical. What has made us so cynical when God has been so faithful? I am numbered among you cynics. But why? Why are we so cynical when God has been so faithful? We've seen him redeemed. Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah, I know it's a story from a long time ago, but it's so rich in description. We've seen him be the God of history. Why do we doubt so much? That's why we don't pray, because we don't think it, it does any good. And yet, what would it look like if the people of God were earnest in praying for these things? And how might it change how we respond to these things and how we, how we handle these things? I'm not saying don't be unwise and don't read and don't, don't discern. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is you ought to be wise and discerning about something deeper. And that is to know the Lord your God and how he works in history. And to live in a way that represents that you believe that, that is who he said, that he is who he says he is. And he will do what he said he would do. Let's turn back to the text, verses 8 through 14. As we look at the second part of the vision, which is where we will see the small horn rise and everything in upheaval, but God will eventually use the wicked. Verse 8, then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great even as great as the prince of the host, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown, and a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offerings because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. And I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary will be restored to its rightful state. Now, this part of the vision is describing a particular individual. This is the description of Antiochus IV, who is known as Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, and, and he is a, a, a Seleucid king. He rises from one of those four kingdoms. Um, the four kingdoms were divided. We know this historically. Alexander the Great was the great horn. And uh, his kingdom was divided into four kingdoms. Cassander was over Macedo- Macedonia and Greece. Lismachus over Thrace and Asia Minor. Seleucus over Syria and Ptolemy over Egypt and Mesopotamia. But this little horn rose, this Antiochus IV rose uh, because there was an attempt to overthrow um, the. when his father passed and his older brother was to rise to power, uh, he was assassinated. And uh, there was all kind of confusion and Antiochus IV actually was able to overthrow the overthrower and he would later go on to kill his younger brother to make sure that he alone was king. So he is described as a little horn because nobody saw him coming. He was, he was kind of in the mix, but they didn't know that he was going to be the one. He's also referred to as the little horn because it reminds us of what he is in comparison to the Lord our God. He is not great in any way, shape, nor form, and he can only do so much. But notice what he does do. Because of the transgression, he takes away all that the people of God gain. And notice, where is this? Did, did they, were they able to offer burnt offerings in exile? No, there was no sanctuary in exile. This is a reference to after they have departed from exile and have returned to the promised land, there is one who is coming who will take away what they had yet again gained. And he will take it away because of their transgression, not his. There is some scholarly debate as to what that transgression refers to. But it doesn't make sense that the people of God would suffer because of Antiochus' transgression, but instead that their suffering was a means of judgment upon them. Now, historically, this is a reference to the time of the Maccabees. For those of you who've ever wondered, are the the books of Maccabees worth reading? Historically, absolutely, it describes all of this. It describes how um, there's uh, all kind of intrigue as to how Antiochus and his people get into the city of Jerusalem Um, and uh, they they do horrible things. They prevent people from being able to circumcise their children. Uh, If you owned uh, any copies of scripture, you were executed. In fact, he killed about 80,000 people in just a few short days, men, women, and children. It was a great slaughter. So this, this reference to Antiochus is beyond Daniel's time, but the people of God need to hear it because it could cause them to think that the world was ending and that everything they had fought for was being lost, and they would misinterpret what was happening. And instead, the Lord gives Daniel this vision to put within the canon of Scripture so that the people of God would recognize this, no, this is not the end. This prophecy is for you to repent and to be comforted. Notice that the length of time that Antiochus can do what he's done has already been predetermined. There's great debate over what 2,300 evenings and mornings means. It's either about three and a half years or 6.3, 6.4 years. Okay. Uh, The length of time that Antiochus is actually from from the time he takes Jerusalem to the time the temple's rebuilt is about three and a half years. The total reign of Antiochus is about 6.4. Take your pick. The truth remains the same regardless of how you look at what those dates mean. But the point is, is that the people of God are robbed of their worship. And that's devastating to the people of God. Even the angels ask, how long will this go on? How would we do if our worship was taken away? Some of you, I think, could be just fine. You might not get as good a nap on Sundays as you do to the sound of my voice, but alas, you could find a way. But does worship mean that much to us, right? And I've said this before. God could have solved a whole bunch. And one of my first questions when I get to heaven, if there's a QA and a time, I don't think there will be. But if there is, I'm going to push my way to the front of the line. I'm going to say, why didn't you just put an order of worship somewhere in Scripture so we wouldn't fight so much about it? And yet he didn't, did he? That's not what's important. What's important is that we worship the Lord our God in the ways that honor him instead of the ways that make us feel nostalgic. It's not about our goosebumps. It's not about whether or not we we get something out of it because we've heard it a thousand times or or it makes us long for when we went to church with our grandmothers whatever that may be i'm not discounting those things but we spend we waste so much of our time wondering why don't you do x or why do you do y instead of saying are we making disciples which is the cure to this by the way it is the cure to the fall of evil kingdoms is to see them converted it is the cure to all of our cultural problems All of the things that we're fighting about culturally, the cure is discipleship, for them to become family, not for us to give up our familial nature. So, this also points forward to Revelation 12. And notice the creation language and the Abrahamic covenant language when it says he brings down the stars He's talking about bringing down both creation and the people of God who are referred to as stars in the Abrahamic covenant. Don't miss that. He is trying to undo what God promised and what God rules over. He is trying to declare himself God. And one of the things he does is he sacrifices a pig on the altar and he sets up uh, something to Zeus in the Holy of Holies. And you may say, why And God destroy that guy? because he wanted the people of God to see what it was like to kneel to a foreign king. If this is what you want, if, this is, if, if the worship that you have is not good enough for you, then you can have that. And so God is sovereign over even these things, because as it says, and should be a great comfort to us, the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. In history, that happened in about 165, 164 BC when the Maccabees took it back over. And this is what is celebrated on December 25th for the Jew at the Feast of Dedication or Hanukkah is the restoration of the temple. They still celebrate this, by the way. Ian Duguid speaks. To this, and it's worth us hearing, the rise and fall of these real historical nations predicted accurately centuries ahead of time by the Lord through his prophets remind us clearly who is directing the course of history. Earthly thrones and dominions come and go in a ceaseless round. Only the kingdom of God is forever. Only, only the kingdom of God is forever. Not this nation, not that nation, not those nations. And yet, what will we do, the people of God, if it changes, the circumstances change? Like I said, if we, can't, if we can't get our pumpkin spice lattes, are we gonna be okay? I'm talking to me, by the way. I'm the guy who orders that stuff. And I say it boldly every time, like, I'll take a grande pumpkin spice latte. It doesn't sound any stronger than, than what it just sounded like, right? Are we gonna be okay with not being able to do all of the things that we think are, are foregone freedom conclusions? Will we hold God hostage because he doesn't give us what it is we think we need when he has given us all that we needed in Christ? When he's given us all that we needed in the church and the fellowship of the saints, he's given us all that we've needed in the table and in the font. What will we do? Has God ever used sinful circumstances or someone who doesn't believe to discipline you? He has me. When I just started at the Make and Rescue Mission, um, my mindset was, hey, we're gonna go in and we're gonna make friends and we're gonna, you know, I mean, we're gonna, we're gonna preach the gospel and if necessary, we'll use words, which is in, dumb, by the way. And Francis of CZ never said that. I thought he did at the time, but it turns out he didn't say it. And so we started out like a house of fire. We had all kind of cool stuff going on, all kind of relationships. And then in one weekend, it felt like Revelation 12 a little bit, which I know is overstating the case, but it felt like Satan was thrashing about and bringing down all that we had built. I got phone call after phone call after phone call of people just coming apart at the seams, and all that we had built was lost. And I said, I'm done. I am not putting up with this. People are messy. They're hard. I I don't want to deal with this anymore. I'm just going to be a physical therapist. I'm good. And the Lord spoke not in a voice that was audible or that requires me to take medication to make it go away. He spoke and basically said very clearly, I didn't call you to do what you were doing in the first place. I called you to preach the gospel to uh, people who are perishing. Not go and be their buddy and basically act like their sin is okay and that it's, it's just not as bad as it seems. And so I said, okay. And he said, no, you're not going to be just a physical therapist. Don't go and do what I called you to do. So went back to the rescue mission, started preaching through books of the Bible. And I'd love to tell you that massive revival broke out. No, it didn't. But we actually saw fruit that has lasted even unto now. People who came to know the Lord. And God used all that breaking and all that sin to show me and discipline me. I didn't call you to this silliness. I called you to make disciples who make disciples. And maybe the Lord has used something like that in your life. It's worth your consideration to ask, Lord, what are you, what are you doing? Whenever, again, we've talked about this before, whenever uh, suffering comes and difficult things come, what's the first thing you ask? Where, where do you look? Most of us, if we're honest, it's why? Why me? Why not you? Why not before now? And what is the Lord doing to sanctify you and display his sovereignty and goodness? Because that's what he does in everything. Everything. Even these things, even in Antiochus' Epiphanes, who thought he was God manifest, that's what his name means. Let's look back at the text and see the conclusion of the chapter. And this is where the vision will be explained and Daniel will not actually be comforted um, in the way that we would hope. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. I want to pause right there. All right, the time of the end, this is, so if you're paying attention, these are only the second and third kingdoms, and there's a fourth to come. So the time of the end cannot be a reference to the very end. What he's referring to is the end of the theocracy of Israel. That Israel as a nation who dwells in the promised land and who has a sanctuary, that will come to an end. And that's okay. That's not been the point of the whole story. The point of the whole story was not, the, not Genesis 11. This isn't a recapitulation of the Tower of Babel that if all God's people could just get in one nice safe place together with one just little nice temple and build a big enough wall and keep those people out, we would be fine. That's not the story. No, he is going to scatter them to do what he had called them to do in the first place because he's made them a kingdom of priests. Remember, the one job has always been to make disciples who make disciples, who love the Lord their God and love their neighbor as they love themselves. And so the end will be the end of the theocracy at the coming of Christ when the Gentiles will be welcomed in. That's why we read what we read as far as the assurance of pardon because you are the evidence of the truth of that passage. I think most of you are Gentiles. Maybe a few of you who are Jewish But most of you are Gentiles. And you're here because the king came and the end of the theocracy of Israel came. So that's the end that he's speaking of. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand up. And he said, behold, I will make known to you what shall be the latter end of the indignation for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king, which is Alexander. As for the horn that was broken in place, of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, A king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction, and shall succeed in what he does, and destroy mighty men um, and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. So, Again, this is where Gabriel fleshes this out for Daniel as to who these kingdoms are. And notice what he says about what Antiochus Epiphanes is going to be able to do. He's going to be able to kill the saints and the mighty men. And he will think he's great in his own mind. I love that the scripture says that. In his own mind, he will think he is great. But he is but the little horn who will die by no human hand. If history is correct, Antiochus Epiphanes died of a disease It's described in Maccabees and it's confirmed in other places, but basically it comes down to he had a fire in his bowels. Sounds terrible. And it was by no human hand. The Lord, our God, struck him down. And so, here again, we have the confirmation that though the times can grow dark, the Lord is still sovereign. He is still in control and he still decides. And notice Daniel's response. He is shook. He is shook because he loves the people of God and he doesn't want them to suffer. And we too should join in praying for those who are suffering all over this world. If you're keeping up with the news at all, um, a number of native Christian missionaries were slaughtered by ISIS not too long ago. Um, In fact, uh, one of them, um, it was the local pastor, his son was killed in front of his eyes and then he was killed. And so there's, there's many stories that, that we just almost find hard to believe. And yet we are quartered safe, so we think. And so it's important that we join in praying for the church as a whole because she suffers in many places. And we should care about the missionaries that we support and we should keep up with them and pray for them. This is a, a plea that you would grow in praying for. Those who are seeking to make disciples who make disciples in difficult places. But know that, that even though Daniel is shook, this is not the end of the story. In fact, his shaking is going to lead him into a prayer in Daniel 9, which we'll see next week, of repentance. We will see what prophecy ought to produce in us in Daniel chapter 9. Brian Chapel says this about this particular passage. He says, in, this, in his humanity, Daniel blanches at the suffering of a broken world and sinful people, but... With his understanding of his God's ultimate triumph, Daniel deals with the day of evil without losing his faith. In fact, knowledge of the evil on earth that must be faced makes Daniel even more intent on understanding the God of eternity and also explains the prophet's coming vision. So the evil that Daniel encounters makes him want to lean deeper in to, dis- to discover who God is, more of his sovereignty, more of his faithfulness, and not recoil pull away. How is your faith affected by the suffering of a broken world and sinful people? How does it affect you some of the stories that you read? How does it affect you some of the news that you hear? How, do, how are you affected? Are you, are you drawn further into the mystery of who God is? Are you drawn to want to know more of who He is? Or does it cause you to want to draw back? Which direction do you run? This is not just about when we sin, but it's when we're afraid. And what drives you to seek to understand God and His Word better? Right, we, 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 again, we act as if we, and this is grown-ups too, we act as if we have an eternity to spend. Our devotional lives, our prayer lives, are just evidence of how casual we are about all this stuff. Woe well, be unto us to be casual about matters of life and death. I know this is heavy. I know you could go to a church up the street and they'll tell you you're going to heaven if, and you can do whatever you want. I get it. If that's what you want, then go. But I will not preach that because I don't think that it's consistent with the word. I know this weighs on us. Those of you who have children who are coming up in the world, you, you have wrestled with what I said last week, and Robbie said it, by the way. Be mad at him, all right? He's the one who told me that stuff about dying in jail and dying as martyrs. I hope that guy's wrong. But I want you to know that in some places in the world, it's already happening. That timeline has already, is already to the end. And so we, the people of God have got to cling to something. We've got to stand upon some firm foundation and we cannot continue to act as if these things aren't happening. We cannot continue to pretend that there's there's nothing that we are supposed to do. We cannot continue to let time go by when it is a matter of life and death for so many. Daniel 8 teaches us three things. Kings and kingdoms are but instruments in God's hands for his glory. Remember that. Two, God uses the wicked to discipline his people. Three, God is sovereign over and specifically at work in the midst of history. You've got to believe that. Otherwise, you'll be swept away in despair. Listen to what Sinclair Ferguson says. He says, we know that God will bring history to a conclusion. It has direction and purpose that is fully revealed in Christ. With such confidence, we can speak boldly and plainly to the darkness and something that those apart from God do not know or understand, God rules history in righteousness. We, the people of God, are called to speak into the darkness. We, the people of God, are called to be ambassadors of reconciliation. We, the people of God, are called to represent him in a fallen world. You get that, right? So how are we doing that? Again, we always wanna measure ourselves against the superstars, right? We always wanna to jump to like George Mueller or um, uh, so, just someone amazing, like some end of the spear type deal, right? So, so in, instead of doing that, why don't we recognize that there is, there is ample opportunity in every given day. You don't have to go anywhere for your display of the glory of God to matter, to matter to your family, to matter to your coworkers, to matter, matter to the students you're in class with. Do you hear what Philip said? There, I don't know if there's a kid in college who's not struggling at some level if they're honest. Every single one of them is haunted and struggles with something. I don't know of a human being that's gotten out of college that isn't haunted or struggles with something. You're not sitting next to anybody who doesn't need you to pray for them today. You're not. They may not be able to articulate it or be willing to tell you. But the truth is, everybody you're sitting next to could use some form of God's sovereign and faithful comfort. So, I'm not suggesting that we gotta go be superstars and do all this crazy stuff. If God calls you to do that, the insanity of God, amen, go do it. But many will not be called to all of that. You'll be called to display it right where you are to make better the, the, and cultivate the ground that you've been given. And so the table is a fantastic opportunity for us to be reminded of that and to be nourished in that, right? The elders would go ahead and come forward. Um, beautifully, Christ uses things that are nourishing, bread and um, the fruit of the vine, the cup, wine in most cases, juice and in ours in this, at this time. So it's important for us to remember it's it's intended to have a nourishing effect. It's intended to help build us up and strengthen us in our faith. And so as you take today, don't get caught up in the weakness of your faith past, but take heart in the strengthening of your faith going forward as this table is offered to you. And so three folks should not take of this table. One, if you don't believe in Jesus, let it pass over you. This is not going to be fulfilling enough or nourishing enough for you. It's just a little cube of bread that is meaningless to you if you're not redeemed. It's a little cup of juice that won't, it won't quench your thirst for the deeper things. You should also not take of this table if you're currently under church discipline at your local church, even if you're visiting with us. I don't know of anybody who falls in this category, but I trust you to um, exercise your conscience properly. The third person who should not take of this table is the one who thinks that there is someone who is not deserving of this table. And that includes the candidates, by the way. If you think that there is someone who is so horrible that Jesus should not redeem them, you need to let this pass over you as well as a reminder that you were not passed over. But you're letting this pass over because you would condemn someone else to a fate that you have not had to suffer. Now, don't let that freak you out. If you're wrestling with that and you genuinely want to get there, then you need the fruit of this table. If you are trying to be reconciled to someone, then you've got to have this. But if you are unwilling to be reconciled and you could say, I just soon they burn in hell, you can't take. You just can't because that's not what Christ did for you. So what Christ did do is he took the bread on the night that he was with the disciples for their last meal together on earth in his pre-resurrected state. And he took the bread and he said, this, this is my body and it is broken for you. And what that brokenness meant is that we would be free of all of the shame and the guilt that comes with our sin, past, present, and future. Amazing. I don't even know how to comprehend it. And yet I am so thankful that it's true. Because remember, he is... He was and he is to come. And so his work spans the total of history into eternity. So as you take uh, the bread this morning, when you get it, if you would hold so we can take together as family, meditate on how God has set you free in the broken body of Christ, free of all of that guilt and shame. Some of us are still wrestling with it, by the way. I'm numbered among you. I need this table as much as you do. And, and so I want you to be a little freer when the bread has been consumed. So meditate on that and receive what Christ has offered in his broken body. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the broken body. Thank you for all that it means. Thank you for its incomprehensibility at some level. Thank you for its eternal work on our guilt and on your wrath. May we be able to take it as a people who are set free by the
1: broken body of Christ. In Christ's name. Amen.
0: Let us take and eat together as family. In The same way Christ took the cup and he raised it and said this, this is my blood spilled for you. This is the, the blood of the new covenant. And what that means is, is that it's not just that we are neutral but that we are actually made new, right? That we can walk in newness of life that we can actually make disciples who make disciples. We can be ambassadors of reconciliation with all of our gifts and all of our abilities and all of the creative nuance that God allows for. And it is in drinking this cup, as you drink it this morning, I want you to consider how has God gifted you? And how has God um, uh, made you new again so that you can contribute something to his glory in this very dark and broken world? where people are frantic, where people are beginning to panic, and they're letting the fear overwhelm them. How can we push back the darkness as Christ came to do? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this cup. Thank you for making us new. Some of us may not feel like it. I don't feel like it some days. But God, that doesn't change what you have done and that we can rise to newness of life, that your mercy is new every morning and that you have given us good gifts to be able to display your glory in this broken world. Thank you that you would put such glory in
1: jars of clay such as us. In Christ's name, amen.
0: You would stand, take and drink together as family. Have one more song and then the benediction. if you would, receive the benediction from Revelation chapter 17, verses 13 and 14. Keep in mind the blessing that this is from what we've heard this morning. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Go in blessings and in peace.